7. The TBM Whisperer. And then some. As long as you're not just totally, completely lame. This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 590, Seven Years of Infanity. Or, or should that be infantity? Infant titty? Anyway, so yeah, on August 10th, 2012, six dudes published the first episode of a new podcast called Infants on Thrones. Later, that number of infant contributors expanded to nine or ten dudes, with one or two of those additional dudes being female dudes. And today you're going to hear our very first introductory episode, as well as a little tribute to each of these nine or ten main infant contributor dudes to this project over the last seven years. Now, most of them have moved on to other things, but their contributions and the love and the joy that they put into this project live on. So I want to pause today and celebrate what we have accomplished to this point. We've published a total of 590 episodes to the general public, as well as 61 exclusive content sharing time episodes to our Patreon supporters. Now, all of those episodes have been downloaded a total of 6 million times by over 4 million different listeners. Wow. Okay. And it all started with this first little episode that you're going to hear right now. Okay, on three, we'll do five. Okay, <laughs> okay ready? Five, 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 four, four, three, three two, two, one. one. <laughs> that sucks. This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are the core. That's right, folks. It's another Mormon-themed podcast. Ah, uh, really? Mormon-themed? We're going to go Sorry. that route already? That's right, kids. Welcome back, everyone, to Mormon Truth. And I go by the name of Okay, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. On this episode of the BCC Zotcast. Get in line and grab your dish. It's time for another helping of the Mormon Potluck Podcast. Another Mormon podcast? I mean, how many of them are there now? The question is, how many good ones are there? <laughs> well, now there's one. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about it. Why, why a new podcast? Well, who's that speaking? Who is that? This is, this is Jesse. Sorry, Tom. Jesse. This is, this is Jesse. Hey. Yeah, Jesse, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, okay. I'll go first. Um, let's see. I, I'm, an, I'm an attorney. Um, if you've listened to Mormon podcasts before, you may have heard my voice 
on such. This is my my Troy McClure from The Simpsons. Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such educational films as Two Minus Three Equals Negative Fun. You may remember me from such podcasts as Mormon Expression, <laughs> Mormon Stories, and Mormon Bulletin. So I think, like all of us here, I've kind of been floating around and been involved in a bunch of different projects, and I'm excited about this one. I think we're going to be able to have a lot of fun and be able to insert some more of our creativity and kind of have some fresh content here that we'll be able to do things a little bit different from how we've been doing them before. That sounds good. I don't know how fresh it's going to be. I think for, for people who have listened to us before, they're going to think it's the same old stuff. Hold on just a second. That, that voice sounds familiar. Who is that? Oh, hi. I'm Glenn. Hey, Glenn. Um, I've, I've also been on podcasts such as Mormon Expression and Mormon Stories. Yeah, I did a, I did a divorce podcast on Mormon Stories once, but I, I, I haven't done anything else. Oh, and uh, Unofficial Big Love. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Unofficial Big Love. Yeah, where we reviewed season five of the uh, HBO series Big Love. Bob and I did that. So. so for those of you just joining us, my name's Bob Caswell, and uh, I've been on such podcasts as all the other ones everyone's already mentioned, so nothing really new there. Uh, so I'm hoping that Unlike other Mormon-themed podcasts that we'll actually get to talk about things other than just Mormonism, I'm looking forward to talking about just regular life stuff from the perspective of a bunch of guys who used to think about it through the Mormon lens, but then had to figure it out all on their own, which was scary at first, and then, you know, just like the rest of the world, we got used to it, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, so I'm interested in talking about economics, politics. I'm not here in a religious context. I'm here as a candidate for president. Hey, Glenn. Yeah. You, you know who I miss? Who's that? Whose voice I missed on Mormon Expressions? Who? <laughs> you, you, you say Mormon Expressions. <laughs> you got to stop that. You're right. You know, you know what voice I miss on other Mormon-themed podcasts? No, I mean, it's Mormon Expression, <laughs> singular. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Mormon, on Mormon Expression? That Tom guy. Yeah. Hey, Matt, Glenn, Bob. <laughs> hey, Tom. 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 Randy. Hey, who we haven't heard yet. <laughs> Yeah, uh, my name's Tom Perry, uh, not the LDS Apostle. You know, the first time I've ever made that connection, Tom. (laughs) Me too. I'm like, shut up. Uh, Really? Okay. That's absolutely true. I have grown, I mean, that's my entire life. It's like, so, you relate? No, no, I'm not related. Um, I've I've been associated with such podcasts as Mormon Expressions. And... (laughs) (laughs) And... And Mormon Bulletin. I also have my own little podcast called My Diversion. Uh, obviously, we have technical difficulties right now, but we will be back on the internet. So, uh, yeah, that's that's me. Man, if only we had an atheist represented. Well, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello? Randy? Is that an atheist? Is that Randy the atheist? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. My mute button's all f***ed up. <clears throat> oh. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess with three this three words in, three words in. Yeah, well, I guess this podcast needed a rabid atheist rep, and so they called on me to join the quorum. That's not why. <laughs> you, you you didn't even say your name, bro. Randy Snyder. Actually, Bob, you you missed one of your uh, IMDb credits. You're also once a panelist on Lunchtime Movie Reviews, which is run by Matt. Ah, that's true. So my credits involve a tedious six-and-a-half-hour atheist podcast on Mormon stories. <laughs> uh, I've also been a panelist on Mormon Expression. And uh, I also interviewed my dad on Mormon Expression Voices. I highly recommend that. It's That one uh, was awesome. One of it's the best a, ones they've done. It's a true, a true believer, like a true, true believer, not like a Brant Malone bullshit. <laughs> 
Yes, believer. But, you know, a guy who actually believes, uh, you know, pretty much in all the tenets of the of, of what's LDS Incorporated today. And I'd just like to say one of the reasons I'm excited about being on the podcast is because I know each of you, some better than others, but everybody on this podcast, I'm, I've been impressed by, um, except for Randy, who called me an idiot the first time he met me within about 15 seconds. I, just, I, called, you, I called you an idiot? Yeah. That was like the first thing you ever said to me. You're like, you're an idiot. Oh, hi, I'm Randy. That's just Ooh, his way of saying hello. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I am an abrasive atheist, and we all are very abrasive people. That's true. Um, but I, I honestly, off the air, we're going to have to talk about this because I don't remember <laughs> this at all. Okay, so the so the title, Infants on Thrones. Wait, wait, um, have, have, has Matt introduced himself? I, no, he I hasn't. Not. Oh, go ahead. Although I, I do consider myself the redheaded stepchild of this group, so that's Why? kind of part of the course. But because hey, I feel like even have any hair, you guys, are, you guys are, that's that's true. You guys are so much more talented than me, so I'm just, oh, I'm just happy to be part of the group. Um, I've been on a couple Mormon-themed podcasts as well. I've been on, well, no, I've been on Mormon Expression, and I co-created and host a, an 80s movies podcast, Lunchtime Movie Review, uh, which still goes on and still puts out content uh, weekly. And I'm just happy to be part of this group, literally because of the five other guys involved. So. So, so why this infant? Who, who came up with infants on thrones? What, what the hell does that even mean? And I'm and I'm asking earnestly because I like the name, but I have no idea what what it references. Well, let's ask let's ask the idiot. I didn't. Oh, that's me. <laughs> oh, that's my cue. Thanks, thanks, I didn't Randy. follow any of the email traffic. Oh, good. Yeah. So, infants on thrones. Um, it comes from the King Follett discourse, which was a famous sermon that Joseph Smith gave not too long before his final incarceration and his death. But it comes from a teaching that he had where he, he said basically that eternity was full of thrones upon which all thousands of children reigning on thrones of glory with not one cubit added to their stature. So just the idea of resurrected babies ruling on thrones forever and ever and ever. This was one just humorous to me and everybody else, I think. But it also has kind of a few other meetings. Um, Bob, did you want to kind of talk about some of the other uh, more subtle meanings that we've appreciated behind that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think podcasting in general is, is kind of this new, dare I say, art form of people just BSing. And at least that's how I view it. I, I, I mean, there's some, there's some really high quality BS that, you know, falls into, you know, categories that, that seem more credible. But I, I think it's nice to not start this on a super serious note as if we're going to seriously have all the answers to life because we've left Mormonism behind because the reality is is we really don't know that much more than we did before. Yeah, so I think that's a good segue into how this podcast, how we're trying to aim it to be different maybe from some of the other popular Mormon podcasts. I think in some ways we will be, in other ways it'll be very familiar to some people. And, you know, each one of us is going to produce content here. And so, right, yeah. like, the things that I do may be different than the things that, that Bob does or, or Matt or Randy or Tom or I Jesse. Hope so. Why is that, Tom? <laughs> I hope that my stuff's going to be different than yours. You don't want it to be the same? No, because I, I, I don't want, you know, we're going to lose listeners when they listen to your stuff, and then I have to gain <laughs> them back when they listen to my stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, Glenn, you said something. I do think it will be different, and I think our goal, at least my goal, is to be uh, to fill an entertainment niche with a with a Mormon flavor, as it right. were. Doesn't that, but, doesn't that happen? Aren't, aren't, yeah, isn't it entertaining? You know, every once in a while, like I got to tell you, we, I was on I was involved with one podcast with you and Randy and and Heather, I think, and I think it was the masturbation 
podcast. It was, on, it, was, uh, it was the father-in-law pornography one, right? That was it. But that was one of the most fun nights I've ever had. And I listened <laughs> back and just laughed my ass off. And I li- would like to see, think that we will do more like that. So let's talk about the format then. We're, we're planning on having some episodes where we have the six of us on and there's a panel discussion and we can just riff on it. But we're yeah. also going to each try to be producers in our own right to come up with our own individual content that we may or may not involve other people in the group on so that, you know, we might branch out in different areas. Like, you know, some people have little pet projects that they want to get involved with. I'm really interested in science and there's some things there that I want to explore that are, you know, related to Mormonism or tangential to Mormonism. But hopefully over the course of the program, hopefully we're each going to have some projects like that that we can branch out on. And that's one of the reasons why I gravitated to this project is because I personally like a variety of perspectives, a variety of takes, differing opinions. And there's, there's a potential for one episode to be very, 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 very different from uh, the following episode or the previous episode uh, due to content, due to tone or, or whatever. And I think that's something that, that's kind of exciting as well. I think one thing that we're also driving towards is, uh, I mean, we're, we're uh, calling ourselves the quorum. Uh, one of the things that uh, seems to be inevitable uh, when a Mormon podcast becomes popular is the cult of personality. That's one thing that this podcast is aimed at is just a group of friends who all of us are returned missionaries married in the temple. We've all left the, at least if we're not atheists, we've left the dogmatic beliefs of Mormonism behind. And, uh, and, and now we've got this whole new world opened up to us. And so this isn't just going to be a Mormon-themed podcast. We're going to talk about other things outside of Mormonism. And there is going to be no preeminent personality that will evolve into the leader. You know, one way to look at this, and we haven't really discussed this, and it's kind of a, 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 a stupid point, but when you when you have to list your podcast on iTunes, you have to pick a category. And I think we've all indirectly agreed that we're not picking the category religion. Really? Uh, we've agreed on that? We? Well, uh, isn't it, the quorum is supposed to vote. Are we supposed to vote in order of seniority? Who's, who's the senior apostle here? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, okay, so we've got to figure that out. Where do you think we would post this? Philosophy or... Really? Uh, Entertainment. I don't know. We, sure. We're going to be doing movie Maybe reviews. Maybe entertainment. Yeah. I mean, I I, I agree. I, I definitely want to branch out, um, but I don't think we can ever really branch out from Mormonism as being something that influences the way that we see the world. Yeah, there's going to be podcasts that are going to probably have a lot of Mormonism flavor, and then there's going to be some podcasts that probably won't. That'll be more science based or more philosophy based or in Glenn's case, a lot of egocentric based. I mean, I don't know. All... <laughs> Why do you do that to me, Tom? <laughs> yeah. But, I, I mean, we could, we could also have cultural and political things. Yeah. Uh, well, no, so. maybe not political, Yeesh. but yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, a Mormon is running for president. <laughs> Lest oh, we yeah. forget. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's another example of how you can leave it, but you can leave Mormonism, but you can't leave it alone. What are some of the topics that you guys are looking forward to exploring here? Well, there are a bunch of Mormon movies that really define Mormon cinema early on. This laugh-out-loud comedy about making the right choices. The Singles Ward. 
There are a ton of other examples, and there's other videos that we all grew up with kind of being indoctrinated in the church. What's the politically correct way of saying that, by the way? <laughs> being raised. Uh, being raised in the church. <laughs> yeah, so while we were all raised in the church, we, we grew up with this media overload of sort of seeing things through the, uh, the, the eyes of movies and music kind of fed to us through the church. I mean, we explored and were participating in lots of other heathenistic sort of stuff like PG-13 movies, you know, and <laughs> when we were growing up. Bob, I would call it a broad media underload, not overload. Yes, uh-huh. there you have it. So I, I'm, I'm excited to look back on a lot of that stuff and just look at it from the outside in rather than, you know, how, con- how I consumed it from the inside out, so to speak. I'd have to say that from my perspective, one of the things I want to add, when I found myself in the great broad world outside of that tiny little box of Mormonism, I gravitated towards skepticism, science. And, uh, and so I'd like to take uh, part in leading things on those topics. For example, the, the Mormon God versus the Christian God, vaccination hysteria. Actually, one thing that fascinates me is why Mormons are so predisposed for pseudoscientific bullshit. Which is the kind of stuff I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, so I'll, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, mean, chiropractors, you're you're down with chiropractors, right? We'll talk about that later. (laughs) Wait, wait, Uh, does Glenn want to talk about this because he's still into it or because he's... I think Glenn, Glenn likes to play devil's advocate and mock it from a distance. Oh, stop. It's, but, not, uh, it's not about that, mockery. That's, that's me pigeonholing Glenn. <laughs> but uh, another world that's opened up to me, and I don't know if, if you guys would be amenable to it, but um, the world alcohol. of... Alcohol. Oh, yeah. Well, we, 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 should, we should have a podcast on alcohol for sure, but... Uh, absolutely. That should be a running thing. This, absolutely. Does everybody uh, yeah, have to be drunk on that episode? And, and, well, and, and the phenomenon of ex-Mormon swingers. But the other thing I, I want to talk about was uh, great literature. Like, not this banal, platitude-based <laughs> that you get at Deseret Book. But I'm talking about great literature, uh, like the Brothers Karamazov, who was written by a true-believing Christian. Uh, but, true, you know, unlike C.S. Lewis, he truly understood the uh, strength of um, the atheist position, uh, you know, other other great writers like Amos Oates. And if you guys are amenable to reading these books, uh, I'd love to review them and and maybe and see it from a Mormon's perspective on why this, you know, reaches more towards the, the human experience than Mormonism tends to gravitate towards like Nephi. Nephi is a great literary character. Just as long as it doesn't turn into like those BYU classes where we're studying Shakespeare and then the discussion went to comparisons of the book of mormon and but i like the idea i I, I have no problem with comparisons because it'll be the juxtaposition will be stark (laughs) i like that you use the word juxtaposition you get get one of those once an episode you get one (laughs) two (laughs) and one big word (laughs) (laughs) i just wanted i just i I wouldn't mind asking randy maybe maybe not in an interview but in a panel discussion so since you've given up on god altogether What's it like living life without any sort of moral compass? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I would okay, have to... He was okay with the hookers. It was the murdering that he didn't like. <laughs> Here's Johnny. So how many times are we going to say on this that are left in where it's like, oh, you can edit that out, but then it's just left in that, you know, we didn't edit it out. We just talked about maybe editing it out. What we should know. edit out is when the person says you can edit that out. It's like, man, nah, it's in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should say too that uh, as far as the middle way Mormons 
because there's been a lot uh, of online persecution as of late on the middle way Mormons, which I don't know, to some degree I take some offense to because I still attend um, and maybe some of my reasons for attending can be there here nor there and some people can interpret it how they will but i don't know i i i want to say that uh anybody that is in the middle way mormon camp you've got my respect and i i don't care how you live your life like like if randy wants to put the middle finger to god or if, if somebody wants to could, cherry could pick you, could you not like characterize me as like this rabid angry atheist <laughs> <laughs> I, well, you know, I am a rabid race of atheists, and we all are very abrasive people. You're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, I don't. It, I don't. I don't be. put my middle finger to to the Easter Bunny. You know. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I will should retract we, that. Edit edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely, do not edit that out. <laughs> so let's wrap it up, guys. The only thing I want to add is just maybe an open invitation to anybody who has topics that they want to explore. I, I really like it when we have interaction with, with people who listen and you know they have an idea for something that they're passionate about. Let us know and we'll record something and, and put it out. Yeah, and I guess if people are listening to this episode then they already probably already know it but the, <laughs> the website is uh, infantsonthrones.com That's right. Great name. Alright, any volunteers for the closing prayer? Alright, so each of these six guys, Randy, Scott, who called himself Jesse for the longest time, and Bob and Matt and Tom and myself, Glenn, we all made our own content throughout the time. We also did panel discussions. We did a lot of different things together. Eventually, we added John Hamer, we added Jake Frost, we added Heather Craw, and we also had someone named Allison who created some content for us for a while. So let's start with Randy. Randy did a mini-sode on October 30th, 2013. This was episode 31 for us. It's called Homacnophobia, and here it is. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Mini-sode. Hey, everybody, this is Randy, and I experience a phenomenon called hypnagogia, where in coming out of sleep or going into sleep, you suffer from hallucinations. Often you're paralyzed. Sometimes you act out the dreams. Last year for our feared podcast, I shared an experience where I felt like I was attacked by a demon. It was a very powerful experience in my life, and you can go back and listen to it if you want to. A couple of my favorite uh, experiences of this type was uh, one of them was when I was at BYU, and I was asleep in the bottom bunk, and I had a dream that I somehow found myself in a glass casket. As soon as that door was shut in my dream, with all four limbs, I violently launched up on the top bunk, sending my best friend and his bed off its hinges, flying across the room where he woke up midair and landed on the desk below. I actually wish that guy was here to tell the story from his perspective because he is a hilarious guy and a really good storyteller. One of my other favorite experiences of this type to share is when I was newly married and we were visiting my wife's parents, and so we were sleeping in an unfamiliar place. 
which probably led to my uneasy sleep. And I had a dream that my wife was trying to kill me. I then woke up and not realizing I was awake and still thinking I was in the dream, grabbed the nearest pillow, put it over my wife's face, attempting to kill her. And she woke up and easily knocked the pillow off and I felt stupid. But it's always fun to tell people at parties, especially after a couple of drinks, that I've actually tried to kill my wife unsuccessfully. But by far, the type of hypnagogic hallucinations that I have experienced in my life involve arachnophobia. I've had three different types of arachnophobia hallucinations. The first and most common type is I'm paralyzed in bed and spiders the size of my fucking hand are descending from the ceiling. When I snap out of the paralysis and actually wake up, I find myself flailing in the air trying to swat away all these gigantic spiders. The second kind is that I have a hallucination that spiders have actually infested the bed. They're everywhere, all over the bed. And when I snap out of that, I find myself grabbing the nearest pillow and just swatting all over the bed. And the third and most rare kind is when I actually get out of bed and chase the spiders along the floor and even at the baseboards. Now, probably a lot of you are thinking, my poor wife, but she's actually kind of gotten used to this shit and doesn't really phase her anymore. It's just part of being married to Randy. And it helps that she's just fucking awesome. So what is it about spiders? Why do they cause me to have all of these ridiculous, fear-induced hallucinations? After all, I don't have any experience in my life like Jeff Daniels in Arachnophobia, where he says his earliest memory was when he was three years old in his crib and his spider crawls up his leg and he was paralyzed with fear and he couldn't move. I don't have any kind of experience like that, or at least I can't remember one. And I don't have this same kind of heebie-jeebie reaction to any other insects or snakes or any other creepy crawly things. It's just spiders. And intellectually, I'm totally on board with spiders. I know that they're vital to the local ecosystems and to the ecosystem of the world in general. They are the most prolific hunters on the planet. They provide a valuable food source to lots of animals, including especially birds. They're also amazing and diverse. They produce silk for their spider webs that pound for pound is stronger than steel and is even being researched to see if we can find a way to replicate it. And even their venom is being studied in the field of medicine for potential beneficial uses. And lastly, virtually all spider species are harmless to human beings. So why the irrational fear? The more I thought about it, the more it just came down to what I call the ick factor. I find spiders icky. The way they move, the way they look, it just sends an uncomfortable chill down my spine. And I just have to resist this urge to smash it as fast as I can. So even though intellectually, my rational brain can appreciate spiders and can actually respect spiders and for all they do. But it just can't get the on page with my emotional part of my brain. Something inside me is disgusted and has a fear of spiders. And the more I thought about it, the more it started to remind me of another kind of phobia that I once had when I was a believer. And that phobia is homophobia. the Book of Mormon, we learn that wickedness never was happiness. Some suppose that they were preset 
and cannot overcome what they feel are inborn tendencies toward the impure and the unnatural. Not so. Why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone, anyway? I was taught that homosexuality is an abomination to my God. Homosexual acts were a sin second only to murder. And that the acceptance of homosexuality is what led to Sodom and Gomorrah getting destroyed. Or at least that's what I was taught. After all, that's where the word sodomy came from. And I bought it. And I believed it. So much so that I spent a lot of time, a lot of my own personal time, making phone calls and and knocking on doors, trying to convince people to vote for Prop 22 in California in the year 2000, which was the predecessor to Prop 8 in 2008. But there was a seminal moment in my believing life where I was at USC in dental school. And one of the professors there was flamboyantly gay. And he became my mentor. And this one day in clinic, he kind of cornered me and asked me a question. Everyone knew I was Mormon. There was four of us, me and three other Mormon friends that were always seen together. We always hung out. We were the Mormon boys. And this professor's question wasn't, do Mormons accept homosexuality as an acceptable practice? It was more of a poignant one. He wanted to know if me and my Mormon friends made jokes behind his back or jokes behind closed doors about gay people, making fun of gay people. So I was presented with two choices. I could either lie and save face for the church, because honestly that's what I was thinking about, is I didn't want the church to have a bad name. Or I could tell the truth, because the truth was we had made many jokes about this guy. I chose the former and felt horrible about it. I even told that story of shame in church a couple of times as a lesson of of how to be more Christ-like. Now fast forward five or six years to 2008, when Prop 8 came out, and then I had my faith crisis and left the church. And when I left the church, I became fully intellectually converted to the gay rights cause. I had shed all of the intellectual baggage that it came with being raised Mormon, and I was able to look at the issue with a more intellectual, rational, and empathetic approach, which then made me feel guilty about my history as a homophobe. And I went through a weird phase where I almost felt like the president of the gay fan club. When I'd be on the street and I'd see someone who was obviously gay, I had to fight this urge to go up and hug them and tell them how much I accept them. And I understand now how that's very condescending and patronizing, but that's just how I felt. How I feel now can uh, be represented very succinctly and hilariously by my favorite comedian, Louis C.K., I never understood people uh, uh, judging people for the way they have sex. So some people get angry at homosexuals just for being gay. They get mad at them. Arr! I never really understood that, you know, like, because they're just having sex with each other. It's like, like, I can understand if gay people were just running out in the streets, just fucking people in the ass willy-nilly, just like a pestilence, like without asking, you know, like you're at the ATM. Hey, what the fuck? Jesus. But there was something that was still lingering, still bothering me. I felt like that if I was intellectually on the same page as the gay rights movement, then I wouldn't have a problem watching a normal gay movie with the same kind of amorous scenes that I'm totally comfortable with in a heterosexual way. So shortly after my faith crisis, 
I found myself surfing the channels on DirecTV, and I came across a gay channel called Logo, L-O-G-O. When I turned it to that channel, there was a, just a typical two guys on a first date scene. They started out talking awkwardly at the doorstep of the date. Then one of them invited the other in. Then one thing led to another. They started making out and ripping each other's clothes off, and I found myself changing the channel in disgust. And once again, I felt that icky factor settling in. And I found this bothersome. It made me feel like a hypocrite. I couldn't get my emotional brain to get on the same page as my rational brain. And just like with spiders, I could see that there was no reason to fear homosexuals or homosexuality. Just like with spiders, I could see only benefits, not just for the gay people themselves, but for their families, and preventing all that unnecessary suffering when a gay child comes out of the closet. And I think society as a whole would only benefit by the acceptance of homosexuality. So why did I still feel icky? But then about a year later, something important happened. My wife and I started to watch a TV show that had long been canceled on Netflix called Six Feet Under. Those of you who are Dexter fans will know who Michael C. Hall is. In this one, he doesn't play a tough serial killer. He plays a timid homosexual mortician. And his boyfriend is named Keith the Cop. Well, the first couple of seasons, I found myself grinning and bearing the homosexual scenes that involved making out or having sex. And it was just because the show was just so damn good. But then something happened to me by the fifth season. When I'd see a scene like this... You can give a fuck for once in your life about somebody besides yourself! Where David and Keith get into a normal argument that any heterosexual couple would get into, and then have makeup sex. Instead of turning away in disgust or, or at least cringing, I found myself saying, Aww. And it was during that time of watching that show that my brain was purged of the ick factor. I no longer found public displays of affection or even passionate love scenes between two gay men as icky. My emotional brain had finally gotten on to the same page as my rational brain, and I felt great. I no longer felt like a hypocrite. And I think this icky factor is, is a pretty common thing amongst heterosexuals, especially those that are sheltered. And I think it's what makes religious leaders, and let's face it, the only significant opposition to equal rights for gays is religion. It makes it an easy sell for religious leaders to get up in front of their congregations and condemn homosexuality. We teach a standard of moral conduct that will protect us from Satan's many substitute counterfeits for marriage. Because, you know, the congregation already feels icky about it anyway. So it's a pretty easy sell. And my hope is that someday homosexuality will become so mainstream and so common and so accepted that gay couples will feel safe and comfortable walking down the street, showing the same kinds of public displays of affection that we heterosexuals take for granted. I like spiders, I like worms. They don't sting and they don't spread germs. Worms have no legs, spiders have eight. I think spiders and worms are great. 
I also dream of a day where gay marriage will be legal in all 50 states. A day where gay teenagers don't see suicide as an alternative to coming out to their parents. And the admirable campaign, It Gets Better, will become obsolete because it will be no longer necessary. And shows like Will and Grace and Modern Family have made major inroads in this direction. And I think we're going to get to this place eventually. But that it be sooner rather than later is my humble prayer in the name of logic, reason, empathy, and all that is good. Ramen. What we once saw we had, we didn't. And what we have now will never be that way again. So we call upon the author to explain. I'll make some tight kids straddle the streets. We've shunned them from the greasy grind. The poor little things, they look so sad and old as they mount us from behind. I ask them to desist and to refrain. And then we call upon the author to explain. Why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone? Well, well, rosary clutched in his hand, he died with tubes up his nose and a cabal of angels. That was awesome, Randy. And now we turn to Scott Rowley, a.k.a. Jesse, who, once he stepped out from behind the scaredy cat pseudonym, <laughs> did one of the bravest things I've ever known. Uh, you may remember this. Someone stood up in general conference back in 2015 and said, Opposed. When they were asking uh, if anyone's opposed, someone actually stood up. A few people stood up and shouted opposed. That was our good friend Scott Rowley, and he's going to tell you about that right here in this minisode that was episode 160. It was published on March 6th, 2015. Let's hear what have you got to say, Scott. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Minisode. Hi, I'm Scott, and welcome back to another edition of Infants on Thrones. In this mini-sode, we'll take a little trip down memory lane and examine the recent history of dissent in the LDS Church. Specifically, dissent in the doctrinally approved form. That's right, despite the Mormon Church being so conservative and apparently abhorring dissent, there is this pesky doctrinal requirement that they actually take a vote and allow their members to dissent. If you were raised LDS, you probably realize I'm referring to the sustaining of church officers that is held in general conference twice per year. The Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Section 124 Revelation given to Joseph Smith the Prophet at Nauvoo, Illinois And a commandment I give unto you, that you should fill all these offices and approve of those names which I have mentioned, or else disapprove of them at my general conference. Now, before you go telling me in that Brother Jake voice, Hey, Scott, the voting of church officers is merely perfunctory and reinforces the perception of unanimity among the members by asking for a vote which has and always will be unanimous. Before you go saying that, just listen to some audio. Back in 1977, October conference, a man politely raised his hand and opposed the sustaining vote then held in the tabernacle. But Elder N. Eldon Tanner didn't notice the man and proclaimed the vote unanimous until the man actually spoke up. Roll the tape! Alexander Schreiner, Chief Tabernacle Organist, Robert and Robert Cundy, Roy Darling, and John Longhurst, Tabernacle Organists. All in favor, please manifest it. 
contrary if there be any by the same sign. It seems, President Kimball, that the voting has been unanimous in favor of these officers and general authorities. And we'd ask those new members of the first quorum of the 70 to take their seats with their brethren, please. Yes. Noah, let me see it. Who is it? Oh, up here. We'll ask you to see Elder Hinckley immediately after this meeting. I'll play back the portion of that clip with the audio amplified so that you can hear the man asking President, Pre President Tanner, President Tanner, did you note my negative vote? Yes. Noah, let me see it. Who is it? He's up in the gallery. Oh, up here. Now, as far as I can tell, this is the first time in recent history that anyone had cast an opposing vote in general conference, and it certainly seemed to catch the general authorities unprepared. It's interesting to note that there is no video available on LDS.org for this session of conference, that is, the October 1977 conference, even though the other sessions do have the video on the website. The next general conference was in April of 1978, and this time Elder N. Eldon Tanner started out by addressing the fact that someone had opposed in the prior conference. Before presenting these names for your sustaining vote, I should like to remind you that the October conference we had one dissenting vote, and there was some misunderstanding about it. Somebody said I treated him very curtly. I'd just like to explain what takes place. If anyone or a number of people are presenting a dissenting vote, we give them the opportunity to go to one of the general authorities to explain to that general authority why he feels that the person is not qualified. And if he's found not qualified, then we take the necessary action. If any of the ushers see any contrary vote and I can't see it from here, I wish you'd let me know. There was no opposing vote in this session. The next session in October of 1978 was when the revelation on race was put to a vote without opposition. The next few years were also quiet until in October 1980, some women vocally opposed President Kimball. They were supporters of the ERA at a time when that issue was at the national forefront. Here's the clip. Propose that we sustain President Spencer W. Kimball as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All in favor, please manifest it. Contrary by the same sign. President Romney, it appears that there are three negative votes. This is to advise those so voting that they may meet with Elder Gordon B. Hinckley of the Council of the Twelve following this session. Thank you. Thank you. You'll notice there were two voices speaking to the audience. The first is Marion G. Romney, and as soon as the opposing votes were cast, Elder Bruce R. McConkie jumped right up to the podium and took control. At the end, Elder Romney seemed somewhat unsure what to call the voting. 
those opposed by the same side. It seems, Pre uh, President Kimball, that the voting has been unanimous, except as the uh, all except those already noted in favor of these officers and the general authorities. The next session in April of 1981 was very interesting. Typically, the church goes through the entire list of the president, the first presidency, and the quorum of the twelve, regardless of changes, and then they introduce the new 70s, etc. In this session, however, the church leaders, in seeking to avoid the bother of acknowledging dissenting votes, decided to only list the 170 that they were adding. They did not go through the entire list of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and higher callings. The ERA supporters can still be heard to shout no to the sustaining of all the other officers, but this is now, for the first time, ignored. Unlike in previous sessions, they did not acknowledge the dissenting votes, they did not invite those dissenting to come and state their reasons, and they did not say anything about the vote being unanimous or not unanimous. The Tabernacle Choir has just rendered praise to the Lord. It is proposed that we sustain Brother Angel Abrea as a member of the first quorum of the Seventy. All in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed? So manifest it. With the exception of Brother Abrea, whom we have just sustained, there have been no other changes since the last general conference. It is proposed, therefore, that we sustain all the general authorities and general officers of the Church as at present constituted. All in favor, manifest it. Contrary, if there be any, by the same sign. We shall now be pleased to hear from our beloved friend and leader, President Spencer W. Kimball, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Kimball. The supporters can be heard to shout, No, support the Equal Rights Amendment. I'll play it again amplified. By October of 1981, the Church was definitely anticipating the opposition and decided to just talk over those opposing and ignore them. It is proposed that we sustain Gordon B. Hinckley as a counselor in the First Presidency. All in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so manifest it. It is also proposed that we sustain Elder Neil A. Maxwell as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. All in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so manifest it. it it is also proposed that we sustain Elder G. Homer Durham as one of the presidents of the first quorum of the Seventy. Those in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so manifest it. 
With the exception of these brethren whom we have just sustained, there have been no other changes in the general authorities since the last conference. It is proposed, therefore, that we sustain all of the general authorities and general officers of the Church as at present constituted. Those in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, by the same sign. Thank you. <clears throat> by April of 1982, Gordon B. Hinckley sounds pretty much fed up with the opposition and general conference. They again did a very abbreviated sustaining vote and had no changes to the general authorities and once again ignored those voting in opposition. There have been no changes among the general authorities since the last general conference. It is therefore proposed that we sustain all of the general authorities and general officers of the Church as at present constituted. All in favor manifested by the uplifted hand. Contrary, if there be any, by the same sign. The, the Tabernacle Choir will now sing with a voice of singing. Following the singing, we shall hear from President Ezra Taft Benson, President of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. It appears that since then, nobody has made a vocal opposition in general conference. I wonder why this is. With many thousands of disaffected Mormons constantly posting online about issues of history, gender, and sexual orientation, why hasn't anyone gotten into General Conference and actually voiced their disapproval of the Church's current stance on those issues? Were these activists in the 70s and the 80s more courageous? In today's climate, this vocal show of dissent seems pretty ballsy. I've considered that people have not objected like this in recent years precisely because they have forums like the internet to vent their frustration. As helpful as those outlets can be, I want to consider whether or not that kind of quote-unquote activism has anywhere near the impact and image that a person standing and opposing in a crowd would have. I think some people see objecting in general conference as a meaningless protest that would only serve to fuel the persecution complex of members. As if the church were to care when one person or even a group of people object. The church would not budge. It would merely claim that it was persecuted, like Elder Oaks in recent days whining about the backlash to the church's anti-gay agenda. But consider the possibility that when the perception of unanimity is shattered, when the church is not allowed to even pretend that every member agrees with everything that they do, some people will realize that they aren't the only ones who wish things were different. Perhaps the church will escort the members who are exercising their rights in the organization out of the building. Either way, it would likely get some media coverage, and we know how the church does when it's under the media spotlight. Standing in the belly of the great and spacious building itself, being one of few to raise your hand in opposition, surrounded by people who will not understand your motives, seems like an incredibly courageous and even noble action, and perhaps a great swan song to a prior life spent in service of the church. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thanks, Scott. That was amazing. 
And now let's turn to Bob. Now, without a doubt, one of Bob's most important contributions to the podcast was the Mormon cred scale, uh, 1.0 and then later on 2.0. It was a lot of fun. We'll probably revisit that in future episodes. But today I want to include a mini-sode that Bob created that had a huge impact on listeners and really influenced a lot of the direction that the podcast went because we've done a lot with music. We love music. Bob is a, a like he's a what do you call the music file or <laughs> whatever those people that just love music. And so this was episode 66. It was another mini sode. It's called Bob's Faith Crisis to Music. And he sings in it and he talks about different songs that were really important to him as he was going through that faith crisis. And uh, it's just awesome. So let's listen to that right now. Religion offers no shield for wickedness, for evil. The God in whom I believe does not foster this kind of action. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of peace and reassurance. He is a God of love. I want God to come and take me home. Cause I'm all alone in this crowd. supposed to be not exactly sure anymore Mm, where's this going to can I follow through or just follow you for a while does anyone ever get this right on Thrones. Hey everyone, I'm Bob Caswell, and today you're going to hear my faith crisis set to music. So let me explain. Ever since I can remember, I've had this habit, bad habit, good habit, I don't really know. Let's just go with habit. I've had this habit of taking songs I really like and repurposing them for the narrative of my life. As if musicians write songs specifically for me. I mean, don't they? Why wouldn't they? Growing up Mormon, everything was pretty conveniently about me anyway. What with living in the last dispensation and being part of a chosen generation and such. So anyway, back to musicians writing music about me. We all do this, right? Repurpose songs for key events in our life? Hopefully it's not just me. I'll spare you the more embarrassing examples and just stick with one major example. Maybe it's still embarrassing. You tell me. You know, sometimes I'm not really sure what to embrace and what to be embarrassed by. So uh, we'll see where this goes. But I'm going to talk about what happened when my habit for repurposing music for life events became best friends with my faith crisis. This happened, not surprisingly, around 2007 when I had my faith crisis. One song I love, and I loved before my faith crisis and still love now well after, is the song No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age. Great band. This is a song I can't get enough of. In fact, I'm one of those sing-in-the-car kind of guys. I love to sing along with songs I love, and this one really never grows old. I like to listen to podcasts while driving my commute, but I also like to listen and sing along to music, especially on the freeway. 
Because otherwise, you know, there's something about stop-and-go traffic that makes you look around and wonder if anyone is watching you rock out by yourself in your car. But I digress. Even if lately I've been thinking, who cares? Why not embrace it? So here goes. Sing along with me if you know the words, and then we'll talk about the lyrics after. Don't worry, this isn't the full song. Or be worried, maybe it's still a problem. I'm just going to give you a taste of riding in a car with Bob for a minute. We get some rules to follow That and this, these and those No one knows We get these pills to swallow So did you catch all that? Here it is again, one more time, the non-singing format. We get some rules to follow. That and this, these and those, no one knows. We get these pills to swallow, how they stick in your throat, taste like gold. Oh, what you do to me, no one knows. So to me, this became all about the church being so arbitrary. I couldn't tell what really mattered and what was just silly. It all started to blur. And it did feel like I was starting to swallow pills. And I love the metaphor of golden pills. Because you know, gold, that's awesome, right? It's always the go-to metal for teaching a lesson about something we want. But then a golden pill? Seemingly so awesome at first, until it gets stuck in your throat. And then when you have a taste, you start realizing that maybe swallowing gold pills isn't such a good idea. And this overwhelming feeling comes over you that you can't explain, you're not sure who to talk to. This entity, an organization, a church, it's doing so much to me, but no one knows. No one knows. Now, I won't get into the rest of the verses, but I recommend you check out the whole song. Great stuff and a nice rockin' song, too. There is at least one other song I have to talk about. Bear with me. It actually came out in October 2007, right during the heart of my disaffection. And wow, this song spoke to me on a whole other level. It also ended up being that classic scenario where, you know, you end up hearing the lyrics you want to hear rather than the exact lyrics as they are. Even so, the original lyrics still work just as well, but I want to share my slightly different version. Are you ready? This is Happy Ending by Mika. So if you're not ready for a minute of being in the car with Bob trying out some falsetto, you've been warned, if you weren't already warned enough uh, the first time. This is the way you left me, I'm not pretending. No hope, no love, no glory, no happy ending. This is the way that we love, like it's forever. Then live the rest of our life, but not together. Wake up in the morning, stumble on my life Can't get no love without sacrifice If anything should happen, I guess I wish you well 
mm, a little bit of heaven, but a little bit of hell. This is the hardest story that I have ever told. The hope of love or glory, happy endings gone forevermore. And I feel as if I'm wasting. And I So, I've listened to this song over a hundred times and still love it. This is the way you left me. I'm not pretending. No hope, no love, no glory, no happy ending. This is the way that we love, like kids forever, then live the rest of our life, but not together. Wake up in the morning, stumble on my life, can't get no love without sacrifice. If anything should happen, I guess I wish you well. A little bit of heaven, but a little bit of hell. This is the hardest story that I've ever told. No hope, no love, or glory. Happy endings gone forevermore. I feel as if I'm wasting, and I'm wasting every day. Now, even though I exited the church in 2007, it took me two years before I told anyone in my family. I was so scared of what my brothers and sisters would think, especially. I honestly thought it would ruin everything. I mean, there is no happy ending now, right? Turning my back on the church? It's giving up on an eternity with my family. And what's the point of even trying to maintain a relationship in this life if doctrinally it's irrelevant and insignificant as compared to the eternities? Why not just remember how we all were as kids? That love was real and without institutional conditions. This really did feel like it was going to be the hardest story I had ever told. And is it me leaving them? Not any more than it is them leaving me, by my account, because they're still subscribing to the institution that provides them all sorts of doctrine that is designed to tell them more about me than I could share about myself in my post-Mormon condition. And I remember thinking, if the eternities are gone now, it sure is easy to live life assuming you're just wasting one day at a time. Luckily, none of that is true. I really am one of the lucky ones. To my family's credit, half of them have fallen away, and the other half have done an amazing job not letting this play out in the nightmarish scenario I had imagined. And life now for me is no waste, because this is likely all there is. I want to embrace this fascinating experience. There's no relying on celestial glory now. And you know, the irony is, for as easy as it is to take an act of Mormon's perspective and point out all the cognitive dissonance in a negative light, if you think about it, it's that cognitive dissonance thriving that makes it possible for any act of Mormon to have a real relationship with someone like me. The alternative is the black and white scenario of either cutting me off or apostatizing. And rather than giving in to what feels like a dice roll gamble for anyone forced with that choice, I say let the cognitive dissonance thrive. So before I leave you today, I want to give you a little more of the song that opened this episode. It's another Queens of the Stone Age song. This one is called The Vampire of Time and Memory. I'll spare you the details this time around, or the singing, but rather, just fill them in on your own. Sing to your heart's content. See what this song means to you. But for me, even now, Hearing a song released in 2013, wow, musicians are still writing and singing about my faith crisis. 
Anyone for the closing prayer? You know, the other thing that I, I just really love about Bob is all of the Dallin Oaks impersonations that he's done for our general conference episodes. So anyway, let's move on to Matt, the former sex crimes prosecutor turned defense attorney. He, he's created several minisodes, a lot of really great episodes. This one was one of my favorite. It was the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, and he compared it to temple work and some other things. And it was just a brilliant minisode. It was published as episode 101 on August 27, 2014. And let's get right to it. Let's hear from Matt. All right. My name's Matt from Infants on Thrones, and I've been nominated for the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. By now we seem to be at the tail end of what's become a real cultural meme. A viral challenge that's become a symbol of charity and sacrifice. Or perhaps a symbol of groupthink and narcissism. This ALS Ice Bucket Challenge is huge. Everyone's doing it. There are reports that this Ice Bucket Challenge is a huge success, with donations to ALS.org up millions compared to last year. As I've watched video after video of people dumping buckets of cold water over themselves, it's reminded me an awful lot of something I used to do pretty regularly. Attend and serve in the Mormon temple. At least that's what Mormons say they do in the temple, serve. So what does the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge have to do with a Mormon religious ceremony? Well, maybe nothing, but maybe a lot. It's no secret that Mormons view temples as the ultimate symbol of their faith. Attending and participating in the rituals there is the ultimate goal for every member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. LDS kids even sing songs about going there someday. 
The purpose is to get married or sealed to your spouse, which Mormons believe is a requirement to go to super VIP heaven, as Brother Jake calls it. But they also believe that this sealing allows you and your extended family to be together forever in this super VIP heaven. Mormons believe that without the temple, all family relationships will be severed at death. Now, I know that doesn't make any practical sense, but that's the belief, so just go with it. So, if the person is getting these benefits of super VIP heaven and a connection that binds them to their family forever, then why do most Mormons refer to going to the temple as, quote, serving in the temple, end quote? Well, not unlike genealogy, the reason why is not very clear to me. But the reasoning is essentially this. The personal benefits of family connections and receiving the password to get into Super VIP Heaven What's the password? only happens the first times Mormons go through the temple. And Mormons are encouraged to attend the temple regularly, even weekly. And when they go back, they go through as a proxy for someone who's died. So Mormons believe that they really are helping people who have died get into Super VIP Heaven and are also helping them reconnect with their family in the afterlife. I suppose this is a noble goal, and I certainly can't fault people who believe in the literal effect of the temple for feeling that they're actually doing some good for someone who's dead. But even when I was a complete believer, I had a tough time saying that going to the temple was a form of service and was frustrated when others would. I'd go through the ritual and realize that these were just symbols without any real tangible effect. This frustration only grew when I went through the temple for and on behalf of John Smith. I'm not kidding, John Smith. Now, I'm sure there are real John Smiths out there, but I wondered, which one am I going through for? And how does God know? I mean, the John Smith I went through for needs to be able to get into Super VIP Heaven and needs to be with his family. The answer came either from someone else or from my own mouth. It'll all work out in the end. I then learned that temples didn't have enough names and would reuse names over and over and over again. So the person I was going through for and on behalf of likely had somebody else go through for and on behalf of them a couple times previously. Well, oh well. If once was good enough, then twice and three times is even better, right? God will work it all out in the end. If that wasn't enough, I then learned that there were people who were paid by the church to come up with names. And they just flat out made them up. Again, oh well, so what? I'm sure I learned something when I went through for that fake person, and God will sort it all out in the end anyway. Soon, even as a believer, I viewed the temple as a complete waste of time. Especially if God would eventually just work things out in the end. I was just moving my hands and doing these rituals to make myself believe that I was actually doing something for someone else. Once I left the church, the temple was still a symbol for me, but it was a different sort of symbol. It was a symbol of the time I wasted when I was a believer. I realized the temple was incredibly inefficient. At one point in the temple, a prayer is offered, and the person saying the prayer holds up a bag, and in the bag is a whole bunch of strips of paper with names on it. Faithful members write the name of a friend or loved one they feel needs help. Oh, my God, 
a special prayer. A prayer that might have more effect because it was made in the temple. This is called a prayer roll. The person saying the prayer picks up the bag of names and says something like, We pray for all those whose names are contained here and the names of people written on the prayer rolls of all the temples this day. So I remember thinking, if if they can do that for the prayer, why not do one temple session for all the people who have died? Boom! One big mega proxy to ensure all people will get all the ordinances they need to get the super VIP heaven and to be with their families forever. Or if that wasn't good enough, why not just wait till the millennium? A time I was taught we would be doing temple work. Certainly all the righteous resurrected people would be able to make short work of all the names of people who needed their work done. I realized I was in office space, and the church is Lumberg, and going to the temple was the equivalent of putting a cover sheet on a TPS report. Just something to keep me and the rest of the members busy. Ooh, yeah, um... I'm going to have to go ahead and sort of disagree with you there. There's no effect, no impact, no service that's being done. It's a futile symbol which only served to make me feel righteous and justified in my self-righteousness. Ooh, yeah. Pretty cynical, I know. I'm sure there are people out there that can talk about the value of symbolism, the value of ritual, and the value of the temple. I mean, heck, I used to always say, well, regardless of whether or not the work I was doing in the temple actually had some effect on somebody, that if I was able to think about a dead person symbolically, hopefully that would cause me to do something to help real people that I interacted with on a daily basis. But I didn't. I think of all the hours spent in the temple, and I realize I would have been better off mowing my elderly neighbor's yard. But I didn't. Because just like most people, I found that participating in a symbol of sacrifice and charity was easier than actually sacrificing or being charitable. You are pathetic and weak. So, what does my temple experience have to do with the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge? Well, like those who attend the temple, I have no doubt that everyone who's done the Ice Bucket Challenge means well. And I'm sure they feel like they've done something. And as I've said earlier, as a result of this viral ice bucket challenge, donations are up for ALS research. And I'm noticing a lot more people recently focus more on donating. But too often, I've seen people and still see people challenge others who say, you have to do this or donate. Now, for the people who donate and do the challenge, thanks for the donation. And I'm thanking you because... Not long ago, my mother-in-law had knee replacement surgery. And after the surgery, her foot didn't really work anymore. The doctors attributed some nerve damage and assured her that she just needed to work on a rehab program. She didn't get better. Her kids assumed that part of the reason was because she wasn't working hard enough to do the exercise she was supposed to do, even though she really was. Soon she got weaker and weaker, And she wasn't able to walk hardly at all and had a very difficult time getting around her house and and doing the things she needed to do. She started having breathing issues and the doctors attributed it to a bout with pneumonia. Eventually, she ended up in the hospital on a breathing machine and unable to walk. It turned out she had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And although no one knew it at the time, 
that's what had caused all her health issues the year before. The ironic thing is that, unlike some diseases, even if the doctors had diagnosed it earlier, there was nothing they could have done. There's no treatment to cure or even slow down this debilitating and deadly disease. And almost with malice, it struck down the mother of the most important person in my life. So I guess I'm glad that people are more aware of this disease than they were at the beginning of the summer. My family's awareness of this disease came as an icy bath to the heart. But being aware of the problem doesn't really do anything to solve the problem unless awareness turns to action. So I'm not doing the ice bucket challenge, but I am nominating everyone who has or who will be nominated to do the ice bucket challenge to participate in the symbol if you want. But don't stop there. Donate something. Or find someone with ALS and help them with something. Because there's probably something they just can't physically do for themselves. And I'm also nominating people who attend the temple. Participate in the ritual. Participate in the symbol. But don't stop there. There's probably somebody in your ward or in your neighborhood that could use a little service. And ALS isn't the only malicious disease out there. My dad and a close friend are currently battling different forms of cancer. Both of them are unlikely to win this battle. And both, my dad in his early 70s and my friend who's barely 35, will be struck down too soon. So I guess I'm also nominating everyone out there to do the Ice Bucket Challenge for cancer. Or better yet, go get and encourage your loved ones to go get a colonoscopy or visit a person who's in the hospital dealing with cancer or what comes with tr cancer treatments. You know, come to think of it, Parkinson's, diabetes, MS, CMV, and hemophilia are all diseases that affect people I know and love. All of these diseases need awareness, attention, and money. Those people and families living and dying with these diseases all probably need some sort of help. So I guess I'm nominating everyone to do an ice bucket challenge and donate to one of those diseases as well. Also, I mean, if you're willing to be uncomfortable by pouring ice water over your head, although here in Arizona in August, an ice bath is more of a treat than a sacrifice. <laughs> but if you're willing to be uncomfortable with ice, let someone stick you with a needle and donate blood instead of, or at least in addition to, the ice bucket challenge. And we can even post ourselves getting the injection and donating blood and put that on the internet or Facebook or Instagram or our blogs or whatever or whatever we're doing and let that go viral. There really are probably an endless list of worthy causes that have real need and are worthy of attention. So since this has become a bit of a soapbox standing preachy sermon of a minisode, I'll end the way many good Mormon sermons end. I challenge you, my good brothers and sisters of this podcast, and I challenge myself to find those worthy causes that we care about and do something for them that can affect change. Do something that's more than a symbol. Or if you like symbolism, awesome. Do that too. But don't just be a symbol of sacrifice and charity. Be the embodiment of sacrifice and charity. Otherwise, we're all just cold and wet. And I leave you with this. In the name of humanism, personal connections, sacrifice, and love. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thanks, Matt. You rock. And now we've got Tom Perry. Moving on to Tom Perry. 
who's done so many things. I mean, one of, one of my favorite mini-sodes that Tom did was about coffee. It was It's just about 40 minutes long, so I didn't include it in this one. But one of the things that I really loved that he did was this ex-Mormon meditation guru uh, right before a general conference episode as he was pulling out the hair that he doesn't actually have on his head uh, about general conference. So he had to calm himself, find that place of peace. And you're going to hear that right here in this episode that was published as 219 on August 7th, 2015. Take it away, Tom. Welcome. My name is Tom Perry, and I'm going to be your ex-Mormon meditation guru for this episode. And I'm going to need you to find a place where you can sit or lie comfortably. A nice, quiet place. There. Begin by allowing the peaceful atmosphere to dig underneath your skin. Deep into your bones. Allow yourself to become one with this moment. Now close your eyes. Unless you're driving. Pull over first. Okay. Now where were we? Yes. Close your eyes and pay attention to your breathing. And let yourself have normal yet unforced breathing. Now begin to connect with your inner world of thoughts and emotions. There. Slowly begin to forget all that Mormon horseshit you've seen from your newsfeed. All the texts and phone calls from your believing friends and family. Allow them to fade completely away from your awareness. All of it. Yes. Now let's take another moment to begin to remove all that fucking bullshit you've heard from this last general conference. Take another deep breath. What were you even doing paying attention to any of that bullshit? Never mind that. Let's get back to our breathing. There. Now watch as those motherfucking thoughts once again try to step back into your consciousness. But keep them there. At a distance. That's right. Now look at them with the proper amusement that they deserve. Many believe that what is moral has basically changed. To that each of us, with with the sound of my voice, may follow flesh to follow. The word ponderize is not found in the dictionary, but it has found a place in my heart. So what does it mean to ponderize? What the f*** are you talking about? Huh? No, what the f*** are you? I'm not. What the f*** is he talking about? Put all that nonsense in its proper place. In the bullshit trash bin. Now take in another breath. And breathe out all that bullshit as you now allow yourself to empty that bullshit bin. You may begin to notice your mind wandering to other Mormon-related thoughts. Don't let any of that concern you. Just acknowledge that all that shit is just fucking bullshit. And now you know what to do with it. 
And besides, you're here now, in this place, just you and your inner stillness. Feel your body. Pay no attention to your right leg as it's beginning to fall asleep. No worries. We'll deal with the pins and needles later. Send your mind to your extremities of your body. Take it all in. Now allow yourself to begin creating an invisible bullshit barrier around your body. Yes. That's it. Those assholes won't get under your skin. Not anymore they won't. They won't get jack shit from you any longer. Breathe in your newfound strength. And breathe out all that fucking nonsense. If your thoughts continue to drift back to that three ring shit show that is reality, just bring your attention back to your breathing. And with each breath, say what your inner body is now feeling. Go fuck yourselves. With passive acceptance, just allow all the distractings to float by. Go fuck yourselves. With each breath you take, your thoughts will become lighter and all those soul-eating cocksuckers will bounce off your bullshit barrier and become exactly what they are. Nothing. Take a moment to appreciate this silence. Now this is your own sacred grove. Own this shit. This is your shit. None of those assholes could even come within a mile of your newfound sacred place. You feel weightless. Stronger than ever before. Confident. Completely relaxed. And free of thought. And as you slowly open your eyes, greet this new world and everything in it by exclaiming, go fuck yourselves. And now let's focus on me for a little bit, because who doesn't love to focus on me? The very first minisode that we ever did for Infants on Thrones was episode 25. It was published on October 7th, 2013, and it's called Ukdorf's Next Talk. And it was just something that I did as I was reflecting on, I think it was the Doubt Your Doubts conference talk that Ukdorf did. And we didn't really know at the time that we could do minisodes. You know, we were kind of in this, uh, we've got to do episodes that are panel discussions around an hour long. And this kind of opened the door for a lot of different formats that eventually we did on the podcast. So what you're going to hear right now is the first minisode that we ever did on Infants on Throats called Ukdorf's Next Talk. Enjoy it. <laughs> this is Infants on Throats. Minisode. Minisode. Hey everybody, I couldn't help but see all the excitement on Facebook this past weekend about President Uchtdorf and his talk during the Saturday morning session of conference. Now apparently he acknowledged that church history has its warts, and that people who leave do so for many complicated reasons, more than just being offended or lazy or wanting to sin. And many people saw this as an important step 
in the right direction. Well, here at Infants on Thrones, we just want to help out where we can, so to ensure further steps in the right direction, we would like to publish this open letter to President Uchtdorf. See, I've actually taken the liberty to draft your next talk for you. So with no further ado, please accept this in the spirit of appreciation and gratitude and satire in which it's given. The Mormon Church is one of the fastest-growing churches on the face of the whole planet. It's pretty dang awesome. In fact, people are falling over themselves right and left to join it. However, sometimes even existing members actually choose to leave it. Why the heck would anyone want to do that? Sometimes we assume it's because they're offended or lazy or sinful. But actually, it's not really that simple. In fact, there's not just one reason people leave. Remember, this church was founded by a man who asked questions and searched for hidden treasures and felt profound urges. So it's totally cool if you guys want to do all that kind of stuff too. Now last time I spoke to you, I mentioned that we acknowledge openly that in over 200 years of church history, there have been some things said and done that would cause some people to question. These things are, well, they're things, right? They're sort of mysterious and vague and abstract. Well, at least that's how I made it sound before. But hey, let's get a little more specific now, shall we? So what are some of these questions and struggles that people have had? Well, some members find it difficult to accept that in 1826, the prophet Joseph Smith was convicted as a con man in Bainbridge, New York, for leading people on treasure hunts with a magic peep stone that supposedly showed him buried treasure in the earth. This was the same peep stone, by the way, that he later used to translate the Book of Mormon. Some members struggle when they learn that the first vision narrative evolved over time and that Joseph didn't always claim that he saw God and Jesus together and that several other details changed from time to time as well. Some members struggle with the Book of Mormon itself, that archaeological evidence actually refutes the official claims made within that many of the animals and technologies and military equipment and religious practices and people of Israelitish origin never actually existed anywhere in the New World. Now, I don't want to overwhelm you with everything all at once, but these are a few examples of the many struggles that people have had. And to be perfectly frank, and I mean even more perfectly frank this time than I was before, There have been times when members or leaders of the church have simply made mistakes that have not been in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrines. Like when Brigham Young organized a home teaching program as a way to sniff out dissenters, or when he taught that God the Father came to earth in flesh as Adam and is both the physical as well as spiritual father of mankind, or when he denied priesthood to the blacks, and claimed that it was God's will to strike down anyone entering into a mixed marriage, or when he claimed that certain sins like apostasy and unbelief can only be atoned by the shedding of the guilty person's blood, and that there would come a time when each member would be required to shed their neighbor's blood out of love for that neighbor's eternal soul. For this is what Jesus really meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Or when he possibly ordered, or at the very least covered up, the Mountain Meadow Massacre. 
Or like when President Packer claimed that feminists, intellectuals, and homosexuals are the three worst enemies of the church, or that homosexuality has no biological explanation whatsoever, for why would a loving Heavenly Father do that? Or like how the church today uses tithing funds to build multi-billion dollar malls? Or like when Joseph Smith said that there were men dressed like Quakers who lived on the moon? Or that Jesus would return to Jackson County, Missouri in his lifetime? Or when he ordered Governor Boggs to be assassinated? Or pretended to translate the book of Abraham from Egyptian scrolls that were really just common funerary texts? Or when he married all those women and girls under the threat of eternal damnation if they did not comply? Or when he claimed that the heavens are populated by thousands upon thousands of infants on thrones. <laughs> now those are just a few things that would cause people to struggle. Now I suppose that the church would be perfect if it were run only by perfect people. But remember, even though God is actually perfect himself, he's unfortunately decided to work exclusively through imperfect people. And frankly, we mess things up a lot. So why wouldn't some people question everything that they hear over the pulpit and choose to march to the beat of their own drummer, since we admittedly are doing pretty much exactly the same thing ourselves? It's unfortunate that some have stumbled because of the mistakes of men. It's even more unfortunate that those mistakes were ever made, especially since so many of you have put so much trust in us as your spiritual leaders. So. Rather than insinuate that people who struggle do so without any valid reason, I'm here today to officially, once and for all, apologize for these many, many mistakes and to take the first step towards our own necessary institutional repentance. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that we will no longer expect to have it both ways. Just let's everyone be cool to each other, okay? Because isn't that really what this is all about? Now I'll admit it, I really have no idea what's going to happen when we die. I have faith in certain things, I have belief in certain things, but the most important thing is that we all have each other's backs and avoid condemning other people simply because they're different from us. So come on, let's all just try to learn the best we can from our mistakes. So whether you're continuing on with the church or not, please accept our apology and live a good life. Because if there's one thing we can learn from that whole atonement thing, it's to love other people more than ourselves. That is all. Amen. Anyone for the closing prayer? All right, after a couple of years of the six of us just bouncing around doing different things on the podcast, we decided to open up the quorum and add someone with a lot of credibility. And we just love John. I mean, we've done a couple of things with John Hamer before, and John was really interested in working with us. And so uh, we said, hey, John, why don't you come on as, as an official infant, and uh, you can create your own content and, you know, all of the benefits that come with infanthood. And so he did. And one of the things that he created that was just so much fun was this Church House Rock parody. We did some we did some fun song things with, with John Hamer. You get to see this other fun side of John Hamer that you don't normally see maybe in some of the other things that he does. But um, so that's what you're going to hear right now. It's this priesthood power church house rock. It was episode 184, originally published June 10th, 2015. It was a conversation that John and I had about this parody that he created. So let's listen to that. 
It's Church House Rocky, a ship off the block from your favorite Church House, Church House Rock. Yes. So, I've invited you here tonight to talk about Schoolhouse Rock or uh, the it's Schoolhouse <laughs> the Rocky. It's ship off, off the, the block. block. It's your favorite schoolhouse. Schoolhouse, schoolhouse rock. rock. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and then the the uh, the church house rock variant that you did the other you know last month, um, because you know that was just the kind of thing when we I just know based on the fact that we're right around the same age, and the fact that you you have the same kind of ear for lyrics that yeah. I do, and so that you know I knew that in the same exact way that I have every single one of those songs memorized right. <laughs> that I knew Glenn would do, yeah. you know. So and so then we were talking about it as a as a thing, you know, that maybe obviously our younger listeners are not as familiar with that as a thing that is a real Gen X thing. Yeah. Uh, that they even made a wonderful Simpsons parody of it about the um, the uh, um, gay amendment. Oh, I don't think I've seen that one. <laughs> hey, who left all this garbage on the steps of Congress? I'm not garbage. I'm an amendment to be, yes, an amendment to be. And I'm hoping that they'll ratify me. There's a lot of flag burners who have got too much freedom. I want to make it legal for policemen to beat them because there's limits <laughs> to our liberty. Least I hope and pray that there are because those liberal freaks go too far. Why can't we just make a law against flag burning? Because that law would be unconstitutional. But if we change the Constitution... Then we could make all sorts of crazy laws. Now you're catching on. What the hell is this? It's one of those campy 70s throwbacks that appeals to Generation Xers. Yeah, but that, I mean, the, the, the Schoolhouse Rock, I, I don't, I don't really even remember. It, it was, it was like commercial time during right. Saturday morning cartoons, and instead of right. a commercial for Cheerios, there'd be a Schoolhouse Rock thing that was just a really quick snippet. Because it was never like a, a 30 minute series where they'd play them all back to back. Yeah, it was in the middle of the commercials. It would be between, it would be between um, other cartoons. Yeah. And like, like you say, during the commercial time. And I think it was because there presumably was a law about this, but at the time, you know, there was an idea that children's television needed to be educational, uh-huh. which I think everybody's given up on <laughs> probably oh, well. as an idea. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, I think that was the idea about it. And they made all of these things, especially the history ones. Yeah. They made them in the lead up to the bicentennial, which everybody was right. super yeah. crazy about. I mean, yeah. so people don't remember this, but in 1976, when they had the bicentennial, like everybody painted all their houses, you know, like, like flags and, it was, you know, everyone was really excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the funny thing about it is that how, you know, just the crazy, um, let's say, unrevisionist history that, <laughs> that was taught or indoctrinated, yeah. you know, in these Schoolhouse Rock ones. And so the, um, you know, like, for example, they, they do this, the, there were a lot of them that are based, because of the Bicentennial, there's a lot of them that are based on the early history, the colonial history of the U.S. Right. and the Revolutionary War history. And so one of them is, you know, like, the shot heard around the world was the start of the revolution. The British are coming, the British are coming. Now the ride of Paul Revere set the nation on its ear. And the shot at Lexington heard around the world. British fired in the early dawn, the war of independence had begun, the die was cast, the rebel flag unfurled. And like famously, you know, like the shot that heard around the world, you know, in that battle, that isn't known whether it was the 
you know, mm. the Americans or the British who fired that right. shot. But in the song, it goes, and the sh- when the British fired in the early dawn, right. the War of Independence had begun. Right. <laughs> the die was cast, so the rebel know. flag unfurled, you know, so, in other words, <laughs> so we know very, very, very sure that that's the one, you know. Yeah. And likewise, um, the beautiful thing about the colonial one, which was called No More Kings, yeah. you know, is that there's an absolute, like, the, the, the colonists have this absolute social contract with the king. They were missing Mother England They swore their loyalty until the very end Anything you say, King, it's okay, King You know it's kind of scary on your own Gonna build a new land the way we planned Could you help us run it till it's grown? Which at the very beginning, it's like, um, you know, gonna build a new land the way we plan would you help us run it till it's grown yeah right (laughs) (laughs) right from the beginning of the colony you know there's this very clear social contract you know with the king you know when it's grown it's that's the time it's going to be up you know (laughs) and then the worst one you know is elbow room one thing you will discover when you get next to one another is everybody needs some elbow room elbow room it's nice when you're kind of cozy but not when you're tangled nose to nosey oh everybody needs some elbow needs a little elbow room that's how it was in the early days of the usa the people kept coming to settle, though the East was the only place there was to go. The president was Thomas Jefferson. He made a deal with Napoleon. How'd you like to sell a mile or two? Or three, or a hundred, or a thousand. And so, in 1803, the Louisiana Territory was sold to us without a fuss and gave us lots of elbow room. Oh, elbow room. You know, which is almost... Uh, it's the Manifest Destiny song, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and even the word elbow room is almost like the, you know, Hitler's <laughs> breathing room thing, you know, mm-hmm. why, why the Germany needed Eastern Europe or whatever, right? But anyway, so it's Manifest Destiny, elbow room, elbow room. And there's even, there's even a section of it where, where the, the line is... There were plenty of fights to win land rights, but the West was meant to be... It was a manifest destiny. There were plenty of fights to win land rights, and the colonists are essentially, you know, getting attacked by Indians. Hmm. You know, and then, but the West was meant to be. It was a manifest destiny. Yeah. So, so the Indian massacres and you know the genocide or whatever of the American Indians was completely. It was a manifest destiny. What can we sure. do? Sure, you know, yeah. <laughs> so. destined. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so we had just talked about that, and then you ended up making. Um, and then when as soon as as soon as I said that this could be a thing where we could do like a church house rock, right. you would just immediately ran with that, and it and it literally was like fifteen minutes later that you <laughs> yeah. produced that episode. <laughs> it was fun. It was amazing, you know. Well. And it was just like. <laughs> so. Hey, do you know about the USA? Do you know about the promised land? Let me tell you about the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and so that one was based on the preamble, and I actually right. pl- I played it for my daughter tonight because she didn't remember when I had, had had put that together, and she's like, "Oh, that's the preamble," and she knew it. It helped her take tests in high school. Yeah, me so, too. Yeah, yeah. So that that was good for her. But uh, yeah, so so you actually you recorded this 
was it two months ago? I don't. Whenever we, we did right, it, but we just decided we, to sit on it because we'd done so many singing episodes. We thought, yeah, let's let's give the singing a break for a while. But right. but now it's back. It's time. <laughs> right. Well, because 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 what had happened was you'd done this thing and like we talked about it, and then we instantly were able to create something that was incredible, and it's just like that's insane, you know. And so then I spent stayed up and spent the whole night trying to <laughs> trying to do it too, and it took me all night. You and know, it's with, great. 15 minutes. And so what I had decided to do with Elbow Room, which like I say is the um, is, is this one about Manifest Destiny and really exterminating the Indians, I wanted to talk about just the evolution of how you go from Joseph Smith's ideas where he is a person who is alive and believing in magic and how, how um, that has been maintained in the Restoration you know, where priesthood, the idea of priesthood is just often just equated or people think about the priesthood as being magical, and then simultaneously how that um, has led to uh, also authority claims, you know, so that there's some people that have these special keys and other people don't, which is completely inimical to my idea of priesthood. So that yeah. was my, the thinking behind this song. One thing you will discover when you get next to one another is everybody needs some priesthood power, priesthood power. It's nice when you've got authority to move the mountains over plains or seas. Everybody needs some priesthood, needs a little priesthood power. That's how it was in the early days of the Mormon church. Since elders were apostles ever Everyone was low. Inflation was the only place there was to go. The first elder of the church was Joseph Smith. He quickly tired of sharing power with all the other elders in the church. In the church. And so in 1832 he prayed and he got a revelation true, making him the president. The president of priesthood power. Oh, priesthood power, priesthood power. Everybody needs us some priesthood power, the utmost trust. In God we trust, there's authority there. Melchizedek was once a mighty king. He ruled over Salem and everything. He could heal the sick and raise the dead. Raise the dead, he ordained. Apostles Peter, James, and beloved John to pass his mighty holy power on. They showed up and gave Joseph super-duper priesthood power. The way was opened up for unchecked tyranny. There were plenty of foes cut off with woes, but the prophet held the keys. Dispensational authority. The Gentiles, apostates, and Missourians, the anti-Mormons and sectarians, they rebelled against his priesthood powers, priesthood power. The mob martyred Joseph and Hiram both. For vengeance, Mormons took a strict blood oath until they decided in the end to to conform for good. And now the corporate heirs can jet with the Gentile elite. 
But it took conformity to buy into Wall Street. Now Mormons have become respectable, even if Mitt's not quite electable. All the women don't got no priesthood power, priesthood power. But if there should ever come a time when social pressures start to realign, we'll pull back like with the blacks again and again. Oh, priesthood power, priesthood power. Everybody needs us some priesthood power. The utmost crust in God we trust. There's authority there. Nailed it. And then, of course... The Infant Quorum isn't complete without Brother Jake, Jake Frost, who was a friend of mine. Even at the time before we started this podcast, Jake and I were friends, and it just took a while before he became an official infant. And Jake has done many, many things that could be highlighted here in this tribute. Uh, Of course, his Brother Jake videos, Carl the Casual Satanist. There are so many things that he did for the podcast. But one of the things I really loved, he, he did this thing that's called Brother Jake Bears His Testimony. It was published as episode 77 on May 22nd, 2014. And it's really insightful and profound, and I just love it. So here's the tribute for Jake. Flying is the worst one because people come back from flights and they tell you their story. And it's like a horror story. It's They act like their flight was like a cattle car in the 40s in Germany. That's how bad they make it sound. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we get on the plane and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh, really? What happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight, you non-contributing zero that you got to fly? You're flying! It's amazing! Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh my god! Wow! Yes! You're flying. You're you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Mini sound. I recently took a trip to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which includes, among other things, the town of Kitty Hawk. While there, we decided to take a short day trip to the Wright Brothers National Monument. I would have already known this if I'd really bothered to research it before, but the Wright Brothers came from incredibly humble beginnings. Born in Dayton, Ohio, neither of them ever graduated from high school. They went on to own first a printing press of their own construction and then a bicycle shop where they repaired and later constructed bicycles of their own. As adults, their long-standing passion for flight began to take shape, and they began began to read the reports of other flight enthusiasts and participate in the community themselves. Using only the meager earnings and tools from their bicycle shop business, they began to create kites and gliders of their own, and due to its consistent wind, sandy soil for soft landings, and relative isolation, they chose Kitty Hawk, North Carolina as their testing ground. For a few months out of each year, they'd make the multi-day journey from Ohio to the Outer Banks to test their craft, and they started to experience some success. However, the largest hurdle still eluded them, self-powered, controlled flight. They just couldn't get any of their creations to work that way. Utterly discouraged, they were on the brink of giving up when the realization came to them. 
All the work they had done had been based on research and conclusions drawn by other flight researchers. But the whole field of study was relatively new. Nobody really knew anything. So how could they trust the work of others? It was in this moment that, despite their lack of formal education, they distinguished themselves as true scientists. Because rather than giving up or carrying on as before, they decided to view everything reported and other attempts at flight with deep skepticism. Anything that they couldn't personally verify through experimentation wasn't going into the design. They were going to build their understanding from the ground up, brick by brick. So, with this renewed determination, they began again, and along the way, many important discoveries emerged, using their own wind tunnel, one of the first ever constructed, and a meticulous method of trial, measurement, and evaluation that calculated the mathematical formula for lift that is nearly identical to what is used in aviation software algorithms to this day. They also commissioned the first ever aluminum cast engine block to power their apparatus, as well as solidified the mathematical expression of why propellers work, which had yet to be explicitly stated despite the fact that the U.S. Navy had been using propeller technology for years. But after years of arduous labor, their backs were against the wall. Multiple mechanical setbacks had transpired while other, better financed, more educated researchers continued to close in on creating a working aircraft. And the window of favorable weather for testing that year was narrowing as winter set in. Finally, they reached a breaking point. It was now or never. So, on a blustery December afternoon in 1903, they put their little biplane on the wooden guidance track and fired up the engine. But because of the weight limitations, the engine had no radiator and therefore could only be run for a few consecutive minutes before overheating. So they were on a short timetable. Their first attempt was promising, but failed to reach the commonly accepted milestone of being airborne for 300 consecutive feet needed to count as flying. The second attempt went even further, but failed to reach the mark. Time was running out. Finally, on their third attempt, their aircraft, under its own power, left the ground, leveled off, and sailed through the air for a momentous 852 feet, ushering in the age of human flight. It's historic moment in aviation as Amelia Earhart Putnam adds another first to her long list of achievements as a pretty pioneer of the air. This airplane and this pilot are about to be the first ever to fly faster than the speed of sound in level flight. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth writing home about. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. I'm going to step off the limb. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The start of a journey that would take Voyager 1 to the very edge of our solar system and beyond farther into the solar system than ever before. The spacecraft is now the first human-made object to have left the vicinity of our sun and entered a completely new region of space.
As I stood on that runway and contemplated the profound impact on humanity of what had taken place there, all the aspects of Mormonism that I've defined myself by in one way or another for so long, like who could get married to who, and temple attendance, and home teaching, and drinking coffee, seemed so small. Even the parts beyond the rules and technicalities, the doctrines and teachings I'd once found as such poignant examples of pure, objective truth started to feel so narrow and one-dimensional and obviously mired in the ideals of the culture they came from in comparison to what that first flight represented for human history. That isn't to say that one somehow negates the other. I just find the idea that Mormonism's assertions of truth are somehow more important or carry greater implications for the human race than what the Wright brothers discovered absurd. In just 100 years, the discoveries made by these two uneducated, unrelenting, brilliant Midwestern bicycle repairmen have reached a state of transcendence beyond anything Mormonism ever has. Their contribution to our collective knowledge has truly rolled out like a stone cut without hands to fill the whole earth, regardless of differences in cultural upbringing, ultimately allowing mankind to accomplish feats once considered the impossible daydreams of madmen. The Wright brothers made gods of all of us, right here in this life. And when that realization dawned on me, for the first time in many, many years, I felt like I was standing on sacred ground. In addition to the Visitor Center and Runway, the Wright Brothers National Memorial also includes a 60-foot 1930s-style granite monument on top of Kill Devil Hill, the hill from which they performed many of their experiments. The inscription around the monument's base reads, in commemoration of the conquest of the air by the brothers Wilbur and Orville Wright, conceived by genius, achieved by dauntless resolution and unconquerable faith. When I first read this, I admit I was a bit skeptical of the use of the word faith. Faith, I thought, faith had nothing to do with it. It was science. Science is about knowledge, not faith. But as I thought about it more, the words seemed more and more appropriate. What else could you call their unshakable resolve to test and measure and try again and again and again, if not the evidence of things hoped for but not seen? However, the faith of the Wright brothers was very different than the faith that led me to take Mormonism so seriously all those years. See, my faith had been sort of a top-down model. I was taught what was right or good, and faith stepped in as some sort of stopgap when the predetermined conclusion of the way things were didn't seem to match up with the evidence or my own moral compass. My faith was rooted in the source of the information I was getting, and what came from that source was true in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. I just had to have faith that eventually the reality I perceived would reconcile somehow with the incongruent ideas I was holding in my head. The Wright brothers' faith, on the other hand, was rooted in the method they followed for establishing truth, rather than any one specific source like I was. They viewed all assertions of how it was with a hefty dose of skepticism, and any assertion that didn't stand the test of independent empirical verification was discarded without reservation. This allowed the evidence to drive their conclusions, rather than the eventually the evidence will line up with this foregone conclusion and it'll all make sense kind of relationship that I'd had with Mormonism. Now, a lot of people seem to think that being skeptical means that you're cynical, but that wasn't true of the Wright brothers at all. Their disposition to never, ever stop wondering and doubting and questioning showed that underlying their incredulity was an ironclad thread of optimism that if they tested enough alternatives, the answer would eventually be revealed and they could step into the blinding light of discovery. With that in mind, I'd like to bear my testimony. I know that the scientific method is true. And by true, I mean that I know that applying it with exactness will unequivocally bring a greater understanding of the world around us. 
I believe all that scientific inquiry has revealed, all that scientific inquiry now reveals, and I believe that scientific inquiry will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the nature of the universe. I know that just as the Wright brothers unlocked the mystery of human flight and allowed mankind to break free of the force that binds us to the Earth's surface, as we remain skeptical of the answers we've been given and optimistic for the answers we can discover, we too can stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before us and reach even greater heights. And that, to me, is salvation. That is exaltation. That is the vision of humanity that I subscribe to. Not a fallen being in need of redemption, but an ascendant testament to the majesty of sentience and critical thought. Sure, we're not perfect, far from it. But I know that through continued dedication to the scientific method, many great discoveries still await us. That we can find the collective wisdom to use these discoveries to help alleviate human suffering and improve the human condition is my humble prayer. In the name of the frontal lobe, amen. I can bring on the bacon, fry it up in a pan, and never let you forget you're a man, cause I'm a woman. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we had these female dudes that were part of Infants on Thrones. There was there was one that was named Allison, who worked with us for quite a while, and she created a mini-sode called Guess Who Said It that was published as episode 130 on November 21st, 2014, and that one was a lot of fun. Uh, we worked on together in, in the publishing and production of it. So let's listen to Allison, Guess Who Said It. Warning. What you are about to hear is admittedly a little strange. And intentionally so. It's sort of an art experiment. Think of it as taking a bunch of pithy, chicken-soup-for-the-soul type common-sense wisdom quotes from General Conference. You know, some actual quotes, and then some sort of made-up quotes, and combine those with a bunch of actual chicken-soup-for-the-soul ripped-off desk calendar page thingies, and maybe a half of those were so smashed fortune cookie fortunes, and then put those in a blender with some paper mache tie-dye, drop it on acid, and that might explain what you're about to hear. So, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. My beloved brothers and sisters, have you ever noticed how the divinely inspired messages from conference talks can pretty much be replaced by any random daily chicken soup for the soul desk calendar page thingy? How well would you do in a blind taste test? That's the question that Allison explores on today's quirky and spunky minisode. Guess who said it? I would be greatly remiss if I did not hear the Infants on Thrones intro now. This is Infants on Thrones. Minisode. It's time to play Guess Who Said It, the game where you guess who said it. 
Jack Canfield, author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, or a general authority. Okay, ready to play? First quote. Don't worry about failures. Worry about the chances you miss when you don't even try. Who said it? You have five seconds. No. That was Jack Canfield, author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Okay, next quote. You have not failed until you quit trying. If you guessed Gordon B. Hinckley, you're correct. And now for a short commercial break featuring some useful advice from the pulpit. Generally, we are thinking of truth as a verbal truth that we speak. Oh, I spoke the truth or I spoke a lie. These verbal truths or verbal untruth. Like a quote out of context, withholding the rest so I can be free what you want to see. I got the gesture and sounds, got the timing down. It's uncanny, yeah, you think it was me. Do you think I should? Dear brothers and sisters, if you happen to be lucky enough to sleep in for an extra 15 minutes after your child has woken up, please don't be afraid to wake up and find that your child has smeared their poop all over their crib. It will sometimes happen that the little tot has managed to unhinge her diaper and begin her creative masterpiece. I promise you that when it does happen, it will make you want to vomit and get your child tested for some sort of psychological disorder. No need, sweet parents. This is totally normal. Clorox bleach is a gift from God given to us for this purpose. Thanks for that reassurance, Tommy. And how old are you? 32. I am. Get away. I am. Well, what prize have you got your eyes on? I have. Well, you've just won a trip to Denver and five others. Oh, thank you. And also, wait for it, you have been elected as independent candidate for Paddington. Oh. Look after yourself. Get one of us for your trousers. Get one of us for your hair. All right, here's the next one. Don't give up when the pressure mounts. Face your doubts. Master your fears. That was our old friend Jeffrey R. Holland. Bless him. Okay, next quote. Everything you want is on the other side of fear. Jack Canfield gets it again. Phew, that was a tough round, wasn't it? We have to take another short break. Stay with us. Dimension from where 
you can be aware what your mind is doing without being totally trapped in what your mind is doing. You can be aware of the floods of your emotions without being totally trapped inside your emotions. Sisters, sweet sisters, let me talk to you a bit about the wonderful new body that you'll be given after you deliver a child. Like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon, virtually nothing about your body will be the same after you bear a child. You might think your new markings of stretch and more southerly lactation distribution centers are a bad thing. But I hope you can look at these changes as badges of honor and of courage. Have confidence. Be proud of your tummy, whether it's an adorable pooch, a delicious muffin top, or curve upon curve of plenty. Wear a bikini if you want to, and never apologize or make excuses for any part of your body ever again. Your wider hips are now the shoulders that will carry the weight of the world as you worry every single minute of every single day about your sweet little baby. But don't worry. This amount of worry is completely normal. I make the most of it. I'm an extraordinary machine. Wow. I wish I would have known those things 10 years ago. Thanks for the advice, um, sister. Gee, um, you, you, you sound like every single woman that's ever given a talk during general conference. I, I don't know who you are, but thanks. You know, you never know what's around the corner, uh, but it's all good. You know? Um, you know, if you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. Do you know which philosopher said that? Dolly Parton. Yeah. And people say she's just a big pair of tits. Can you guess who said this little nugget? Her meaning of self-esteem is to feel lovable and capable. As parents, we must love our children unconditionally and give them a sense of being nurtured. That's the lovable part. Then, we must provide structure, rules, boundaries, daily or weekly household tasks that give them a sense they're making a contribution. That's what helps kids grow up feeling capable. That's correct. It's Jack Canfield. Really good advice. Thanks, Jack. It's time for another break, and stay tuned, because this time it has to do with bedroom business. Girl, tonight we're going to make love. You know how I know? Because it's Wednesday, and Wednesday night is the night that we usually make love. Monday night is my night to cook. Tuesday night we go and visit your mother, but Wednesday we make sweet weekly love. It's when everything is just right. 
there's nothing good on TV. You haven't had your after work social sports team practice, so you're not too tired. Oh, it's all on. Brothers and sisters, I now speak to you about a somewhat sensitive matter. Take it on. Sexual relations between lovers can be a wonderful, beautiful thing. But they can also be as raunchy, dirty, or adventurous as you'd like. Baby, take it on. As long as both partners are first comfortable with it and both consent, I want you the way you came into the world. Then there is no sexual act that can be deemed as wrong. I don't want to feel no clothes. If it is between lovers, I don't want to see no panties. And please remember, she comes first. Elder Oaks. I had no idea you were so progressive. And now, back to the show. All right, guess who said this? You rock a sobbing child without wondering if today's world is passing you by because you know you hold tomorrow tightly in your arms. Did you guess Elder Neil A. Maxwell? No? You should have. It's time for our last commercial break. This message is brought to you by my favorite, the Silver Fox himself. It is now to the men that I would like to speak on the topic of caring for children. You are by nature fantastic at nurturing and if you feel you're not then all it takes is a little practice your caring spirits might be hidden a bit below the surface because of years of being told to be tough and strong and some people might have made you feel inadequate as a nurturing force in the world but Brethren, just because you have no mammary glands doesn't mean you can't nurture your children just as well as the women in your life. Test it out, and I think you will find this to be true. Nobody else is ever gonna see but you and me. Meanwhile, high in the Swiss Alps, two elderly Scotchmen munch on a rare cheese. Mm, wonderful stuff, this Agnes. Aye, it's wonderful stuff. Well, I hope you enjoyed playing with us tonight. And remember, as Jack Canfield says, you don't need coffee, nobody needs coffee. You can get along without it. Or was that Hinkley? Well, thanks for playing Guess Who Said It. Brought to you by Infants on Thrones. Talking out of our asses since 2012. Excuse me! 
I'd like to ask you a few questions. Hi, this is Hillary. Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. If you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? They'd like to thank you. We'd like to thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Allison. I hope you're listening to this, and I hope that all is well. And Heather, Heather, everybody loves Heather. I mean, everybody loves Heather. When Heather came on, she just took us all by storm. And the reason is because she wrote this conference talk parody. No one really asked her to. She just did it. She just took the initiative. And she said, you know what? There needs, there must needs be, there must needs be a female voice, a regular female voice on Infants on Thrones. I'm going to do it. And so she created this conference talk parody that was published as part of episode 221 on October 10th, 2015. It's awesome. Let's listen to it now. Since most of you will either zone out or fast forward when a woman starts to speak, I want to address my remarks to the mothers and future mothers. Like other lady speakers, I want to start off my talk with cute pictures of newborn babies because that's what we're all about, am I right? But I also want to be sensitive to those among us who have not been blessed by the Lord with children like I have. Motherhood is like the lady priesthood. It is the primary reason for our existence as women. Now even if, like I said, God hasn't given you children like he has the rest of us, you have probably still taken care of other women's children in your otherwise meaningless lives. So it's sort of like you fulfilled the measure of your creation vicariously. And oh, how we love and thank you for it in a non-condescending way. Now enough words from me. I'm going to use many block quotes from President Boyd K. Packer so you can hear real doctrine from a real authority. I asked if they could just play a recording of a President Packer talk while I stood here in a festive skirt suit and smiled, but the brethren said no. Remember President Boyd K. Packer's last talk, A Cookie and a Kiss? Wasn't that just a tickle? Remember when he said, quote, True love requires reserving until after marriage the sharing of that affection which unlocks those sacred powers by avoiding situations where physical desire might take control. End quote. That was awesome. President Packer just has such a knack for saying what women would be thinking if they could do that. Sisters, I have felt a great anxiety as I have prepared this talk about the nasty. 
Even preparing a talk about it is like having impure thoughts which excite and alarm me. Sisters, Satan is leading away our womanly hearts with his giant tools. What are some of his tools? TV soap operas. The Facebook, where married women are contacting old boyfriends just to see if they kept their hair or rose higher in the priesthood than their husbands. Pornography and seductive romance novels. Twilight is okay, though, because it was written by our own dear sister and contains only married sex between an 18-year-old girl and a 104-year-old man, as the Lord intended. Sisters, we cannot play with Satan's fiery darts and not get burned. We cannot toy with his poison pickle. We cannot handle his abominable banana of death without getting skewered. If what we read, listen to, or choose to do doesn't meet the Lord's standards in For the Strength of Youth, turn it off, rip it up, stomp on it with the high hills of righteousness, smash it with the pie plate of God's mercy. Beware of Satan's evil internet. Many are looking for instant gratification and instant knowledge on the internet instead of exercising patience through study and prayer. When you need to know the capital of Armenia or whether these symptoms are the warning signs of a heart attack, who are you going to trust? The internet or the Holy Spirit which testifieth of all truth. Now I want to quote President Packer quoting Jesus because what an old leader of the church said doesn't matter anymore unless the modern day leaders are still quoting it. President Boyd K. Packer said, quote, The promise is, double quote, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. End double quote. End quote by President Packer. I couldn't have said it better myself, even if I had that very special thing that starts with P that only the brethren get. One of the helps we have to overcome temptation is our temple garment. I have come to feel that the garment is like a royal robe given me by my heavenly Father. I testify, sisters, that God is always watching, and it pleases him to see that we're wearing the right undies in the right way. Now, for a lot of you, life is tough. You might be barren or spinsters. And if that's the case, thanks again for watching my kids in nursery. One sweet sister I know had not one, but two ex-husbands she had to divorce because they wouldn't stop watching the pornography. She exclaimed, I have tried so hard to live righteously. What have I done wrong? 
What does Heavenly Father want me to do? I pray and read scriptures, help my children, and go to the temple often. I felt like shouting out, You are doing it. You are doing all that Heavenly Father wants and hopes you will do. He just doesn't feel like blessing you yet. I don't know why life is so hard. But there's this Boyd K. Packer quote that makes it all seem kind of okay somehow. President Packer said, We've always counseled for our Japanese members to marry Japanese, our Caucasians to marry Caucasians, our Polynesians to marry Polynesians. Oops, that's the wrong quote. It was, Some things that are true are not very useful. No, that wasn't it. It can be compared to a little factory. No, you know, I can't think of the right President Packer quote right now. But it was something real comforting, like, nobody can expect to be happy until they are dead. Sisters, I know with every fiber of my being that heaven is going to be just so super fantastic that when we get there, all these problems like human trafficking and childhood cancer and mass starvations that drive people to eat their own dead children will seem like no big deal. I so testify in the sacred name of him who is only slightly less alive this conference than last, even Boyd Kenneth Packer. Amen. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this stroll down memory lane as we celebrate seven years of Infants on Thrones. Do we have another seven in our tank? (laughs) Seven years? I don't know. I don't know. But we'll keep doing this as long as it's fun. And it's fun. I enjoy it. Talk about different things now. Doing more on Patreon than we used to in the past. And while I'm mentioning Patreon, why don't you come and support Infants on Thrones? Wherefore, as little as $1 per month, you can get extra bonus content and help keep this podcast alive, stretching on for another seven years. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Hello, this is Penelope. Ashley. Olga from Moscow. Brittany, Miss Arlington, Texas. Destiny. As woman, I know only way to be on podcast is be man. And I'm recording this in my party line voice. As a woman, this is my best chance of getting on the podcast. You can comment on this episode on the website infantsonthrones.com And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes so that we can all live in a more peaceful world and a better tomorrow like I did. Oh, did I ever. Anyone, Anyone for, for the, the closing, closing prayer? prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.